please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Lysan Keen. Now, from what, what research I've seen, you come from Australia, is that correct? That's right. I lived in Australia for 15 years. I was born in Malaysia, a country near Singapore in Southeast Asia. A lot of Americans know Southeast Asia for Thailand and Vietnam. I was born in Malaysia. My grandfather was a refugee from China during World War II. He fled in a boat with his wife and two children to uh, Malaysia. Uh, at that time, I think any country would take them, they will have, you know, you know, happily go. And so they settled in Malaysia, had my father, and then my father had me. Malaysia is a former colony of the British. So that's why I speak English. Because English is a, uh, a language that is still being taught in Malaysia. That's one of the main languages. Then I moved to Australia, married an Australian man, and then <laughs> had two children there. Uh, oh, backtrack, sorry. When I was in Malaysia, I was working in the tech business, in the tech industry. So uh, in the early 90s, there was the tech boom. People who are Gen X, like me, would remember that those times in the late 80s, you know, Apple, Microsoft, you know, Bill Gates. He was like, uh, you know, uh, the hero. People adore him for what he has done for computers. Oh, I was in San Francisco in the late 90s. I'm fully aware of the tech boom. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, in, in Asia, too, you know, the whole region was uh, experiencing that, you know, the rise of tech. Because a lot of the American companies were setting up factories there. My childhood, I, I grew up not rich. So because we were, we were a refugee family, you know, you know, we weren't rich. And also Malaysia was a country that uh, did not favor the Chinese people. You don't say. We don't have the same rights as the Malay, the natives. And also as a woman, you know, in a Muslim country, can you imagine? Well, I personally cannot, but I, I did live in a Muslim country for six years. So, yes, I'm aware. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so while in the tech business, I actually worked for uh, several multinational companies like Unisys, which uh, they don't exist anymore. And then Novell, which is a software company. I think they don't exist anymore. <laughs> Novell may be a, a consulting company now. They uh, have pivoted to a different, you know, Novell is a company, a software company that did networking. I do know. I know both of those companies, but I'm pretty, yes, yeah, something tells me Novell still exists. But yeah, I believe they've sort of changed the platforms. Totally different business. You know, they're from Utah, you know. The founders were Mormons and stuff. When I was in the tech business, <laughs> I met my husband who was Australian. And then we got married and I moved to Australia, to Sydney, Australia. Beautiful city. Yeah. We decided that, you know, we would just have children early so that we could have a more relaxed life later on you know so straight away had children <laughs> spent 10 years almost 10 years as a housewife and then when the kids were like around 10 or 8 i thought hey i have to do something with myself what i always wanted to do is get into the arts so i enrolled in an art school at that time the college is called college of fine arts uh, which is part of unfw university of new south wales so uh, now they've, they've changed the name. It's called UNSW School of Art and Design because they favor, they have kind of like focused a lot on like, you know, teaching digital art, you know, more technical stuff. But they still have a really beautiful uh, art department faculty, which I love because I enjoyed my three years there very, very much. 
as a mature student, as a woman who was older than everybody. All my classmates were like in the uh, 18 or 19 years old, but I was already in my 30s uh, at that time. But I enjoyed my uh, experience. I was doing, my degree was in art theory, art history. So so the path uh, to a uh, career path for that degree would be, you know, as a gallerist or something, you know, run a gallery, you know, be an art admin or, you know, join a museum. But of course, you know, you, I will, you have to get a PhD before you get hired uh, by a museum. So I just, you know, I, uh, when, once I graduated, I worked for free. As we all do. Yeah. Yes. You, you have to, you know, you have, you have to pay your dues. In the, in the arts, it's very interesting, very strange to me that in the arts, you have to be kind of from money. Because when you graduate <laughs> with this degree, it does help for sure. You, you, you the job prospect is very little and the pay is so low. If you don't have any backing, financial backing, it's very, very hard. It, it's very true. I mean, I keep looking around and like, as I do research about like different artists and different gallerists and these kinds of people, I'm suddenly like, oh, wait, oh, their parents were so-and-so. Right. And I'm like, yeah. oh, that explains how they were able to afford to do this lifestyle and have the connections and get these exhibitions or fund their gallery or whatever. And yeah. it, it, in some yeah. ways, it's very sad because it's sort of, you know, the rich propagating the rich kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And then further down the road, you not will, that owning sorry. an art gallery or being an artist ever like has the guarantee of becoming rich. Oh no, not at all, not at all. You are crazy to even want to be an artist or an art gallerist. Actually, we are a group of people who are kind of little eccentric, and you know, we yeah, we're different. Down the road too, you know, once you get into the art field more deeply, you will also know that it's who you know, not what you know, as well. A lot of connection, you know. Let's say, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. I'm laughing because, like, you're just jumping into all the serious topics. Like, yes, that is right. It really, like, I wish somebody had told me when I was young that it was more about who you know than your skills or your merit or your knowledge. Because, like, yeah. when I went to school, I was there to learn. I was there to get the degree. I was there for like those kinds of purposes. But in reality, the the, the benefit of going to any particular school seems to be the connections you make to the teachers or to the yes. the, the guest lecturers or to your peers yeah. or to all these yeah. kinds of people. And I, I totally ignored all that stuff because I believed that the art world was about merit and concept and technique and all these kinds of things that is totally wrong now that I know have, you know, 25 years in the arts industry. I'm just like, fuck, I wish somebody had told me that when I was a kid. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. Well, you made it this far, so yeah, congratulations. Well, but yeah, I mean, I'm in academia. I mean, I'm a professor, and like, even as a professor, it, it's still connections because the mm. way you'll hear about a job, the opportunity that comes up, or get through a committee to hire you is because you know somebody on the committee, and they mm. like you, and that's how you get hired. So, like. It's not even just like the arts world proper, but even like the tertiary things like arts academia that are still who you know and, and who you're friends with more so than necessarily the quality of your work. That's true. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. It's very sad. Um, so after I graduated, you know, I experienced a lot of pushbacks, a lot of discrimination. 
when I send my resume out for internship, let's say, my name is Lai San. It's in Australia, I think, predominantly white society. The name Lai San, it's, you know, first they couldn't pronounce it, you know, and they, they have like, let I'm one of uh, 50 candidates and they would go for Sally and Mary or why would they go for Lai San, whom they, they may think couldn't speak English. So, or have an accent they couldn't adjust to. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's funny yet true, but it's sadly, sad but I, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. but I also feel yeah. like sort of it, it's one of those things. Like sometimes I feel like, like me, I feel like I miss my boat. Like my boat was pre um me too movement and all these and, and, and like black lives matters and all the yeah. other sort of things mm -hmm. because like now i am a white man, man. american mm -hmm. cis heterosexual that's white right man. you are all the what they don't want that's right i am completely undesirable at this point whereas <laughs> so you sorry. are completely desirable at this point hey there you go the pendulum swung Doing, it does yeah. it's perfectly legitimate it's the way the world works but it's just very funny like when both of us were coming out like i should have been on the top of my game then and i'm doing much better now but like you had the problems early on whereas mm. right now you potentially should be doing pretty well i, I think i am doing quite well yes uh, thank you yes one of the reasons of course yes it is the uh the minority factor but at the same time i think i try to produce narrative based quality because i want to tell the story i want to tell and not just to pander i didn't say that just to be clear yeah yeah no no no. you didn't but you're right to observe that yes it is right if you're a minority you know this is your moment more so than any time in the past yeah. that's right yeah but there is also what kind of minority as well so asians have <laughs> different challenges asians are always accused of being white passing have you heard of that white passing white adjacent because we are model minorities. We go to Harvard, you know, we are hardworking. We don't get in trouble. <laughs> I love how you said Harvard. <laughs> I live here. For, I've lived here for a while. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, from Australia to here. Well, yeah. So, yeah. What brought you from Australia to, to the Boston area? Yeah, this is because of my husband. So while I was trying to make a mark in Australia, in Sydney, in which I was failing miserably, no major galleries would hire me, not even an internship. And so I did volunteer for a national art school uh, in their galleries for two years. It's a free uh, position. Then I got a job in the gallery that sells Aboriginal art. They were owned by Iranians. So they were immigrants themselves, you know, so just minorities helping each other, I guess. I don't know. That that's a fascinating combination. An Iranian couple, I assume. An Iranian couple. No, they're a family. Family Iranians who immigrated to Australia, and then they started an Australian uh, a souvenir shop selling boomerangs and stuff. But then they expanded to selling Aboriginal paintings from uh, Central Desert. As one does, sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, evolution of yeah, I guess of Australian art, particularly. Yeah. So I worked there for two years. Also lowly paid, not, you know, basic, just basic <laughs> income. But I, I really wanted to learn. It wasn't the money that was my motivation. It was me wanting to build my resume, just wanting to learn what it is to become a gallerist or the art business and selling art, you know, dealing with artists. 
and also the art world. Then my husband started a company and he got funded. And then we moved to Boston. So I had no choice but to come here. It was for the best, I think. You know, America has, has actually given me more opportunities than Australia. So again, when I came here, I wasn't allowed to work. I had, didn't have a work permit at that time, the first, first two years. So again, just volunteer. I volunteered for so many film festivals. <laughs> the Asian American Film Festival, the Independent Film Festival, the uh, Boston Jewish Film Festival, <laughs> you, you name it. You know, I was there, you know, ushering people into the theaters. I volunteered for Concord Art Association, which is a town next to where I lived in Lexington. I volunteered there. And then from the volunteer job, I met a gallerist in Concord. She offered me a volunteer position, you know, just, you know, come in twice a week, come and do some data entry clean the gallery, you know, stuff like that. I did all that. Sorry, all of that just sounds so stereotyped racist. Like, let's bring the Asian woman in to do data entry. It just seems so yep. wrong. Go on. Yeah, yeah. And cleaning. I know. Vacuuming, just... cleaning. Um, and also uh, turn up for the reception to help serve drinks. <laughs> I did that. I, I I I almost feel like I should apologize on behalf of America. Oh no, you don't have to. No, no, no. it's I, just I, horrible. I know, sounds horrible, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud of everything I did. I it wasn't beneath me, you know. Hey, if you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. Mm. Well, I think you know the people who did it, you know, who hired me, they should be uh, reflecting on that and think about what they have done, but. Someone has got to do their job and someone has to gain the experience. And I wanted the experience. So then when I got my work permit, the gallerist employed me. So I became a full-time employee. And then about three years working for her, she was not doing very well. And she's in her 70s. So an older woman who has already had the gallery for 30 years. So I offered to buy the gallery from her. And she didn't want to sell me the whole gallery. She said, let's do become 50-50. And that's what happened. She and I were partners in the gallery for two years before I then left the partnership and started my own in 2020. April 2020, during the start of the pandemic. Yeah, I saw there was a news article about you, like basically saying like, okay, worst time probably in modern history to start an art gallery. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you chose to start an art gallery. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's, I think that's, <laughs> that's my personality, I guess. Yeah. So nothing is too hard. Nothing is too dirty, you know, to like get my hands in. I'm not afraid of hard work. When I see obstacle, you know, I try to just break it down. I go for it. I think that's the story of my life as a, you know, a product of refugee, a diaspora Chinese. I didn't even know what diaspora meant until like a year ago. Somebody explained it to me. I got it now though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So, okay. But so really the question though is why of all the times in your potential career, would you choose to do this? Like, I mean, cause you're talking about where well, you said April, like, so like the pandemic, already, yeah, the pandemic was already going. And so you're like, yes, opening a, it was store, a lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure rents were great. I'm sure you could get a good deal on rent at that time, but mm, like, yeah. Like, yes, you're right. In April 2020, it was still a lockdown, right? In America anyway, there was a lockdown and you couldn't have, nobody can visit a physical space. At that time, I was interested in how galleries business is changing anyway. 
there were already things like online viewing room. There were already virtual exhibitions. Matterport, you know, the company has already existed. I do not know Matterport. Yeah, so they provide you with like a 3D rendering of like a virtual space where you can provide the viewer like a virtual diorama or something. Yes. Yeah, so if you're, you're not there, you can actually kind of like watch it on the computer. So all those technologies already exist, already, you know, galleries already applying or using those strategies or techniques to get buyers, right? To look at their works. Isn't COVID uh, lockdown the most perfect time to kind of use those technologies that that's already existed, that's already on offer? Well, if they work, and I'm still questionable and slightly dubious on whether or not that entire sort of like online looking at art versus seeing it in real life really works. Yes, you got a good point. Yes, I will answer that for you. <laughs> it's a tough question because yeah. certain certain mediums, let's say, certain styles, like they, they mm -hmm. render beautifully on a, on a computer screen and can do really very well. But certain ones just can't. Like I can imagine yeah, lots of materials that like you just can't understand its, its scale or its, or its material qualities virtually in the same way that you would in reality. When I started my gallery, my online gallery, because when I started the gallery, it was just online. I did think about, hey, would people buy work, you know, online? Would they pay $10,000 for a painting without, you know, like actually seeing it in person? Well, of course, you know, those are all learning curve for me, right? You know, I was learning it as well. I always go into things with uh, optimism. I always say, yes, yes, there will be an audience for what I tell. I have to. Otherwise, I won't be uh, an art gallerist. I won't have a gallery. You know, if I am always say, oh, no, no one's going to look at my stuff. I always have to come in telling you, this is the best thing ever. And I have to, I have to stand, you know, I have to be like that, you know? Anyway, back to this online buying. Yes, it's true. Uh, I did learn, you know, uh, this past uh, what, two years now, there are certain artworks that don't look very good online, especially sculptures, ceramic work, 3D works. It's very hard to really convince somebody to part $5,000 for a nice sculptural work, a ceramic work. Well, that's the thing is like, I've been looking into three dimensional, like doing videos, like where they spin it around and take like multiple yeah. or just a video of it sort of moving around in circle. Cause so you get a sense of it. I mean, all, most, you know, fashion houses and like shoe companies and like all these different places, they're all using that technology now. And it's like, yeah. why yeah. hasn't the art world sort of picked up on basically doing like a 360 degree presentation of a piece of art? I mean, obviously, okay, a painting, I don't need to see the back of it, but, but yeah. like works that like look different in different lighting situations. So you could see the reflective qualities or the matte surfaces kind of things like by yeah. like looking at it that way. Like, I mean, that's an amazing technology to be able to enhance sort of the ability to sell online that I think, you know, will make it easier to sell online versus the issues of like what you can't see if you're not there in reality kind of stuff. There are artists who actually use uh, Lazy Susan. Yeah. Lazy and Susan, yeah. <laughs> Lazy, and you put, uh, yeah, your sculpture on it and then, then you film it, you know, or then you can do it in slow motion and stuff like that. Yes, they have. We have artists who actually have you know, presented it that way, but still not convincing. I think still not interesting. Okay. So three dimensional work doesn't sell as well online. 
Yeah, but paintings as well. If you it is above certain price point, it's harder for what price point? I would say you know anything above thirty thousand, it would be harder for someone to to say, oh, I'll buy it without looking at it. But I have sold、uh, a lot of work, you know, less than that, without the collectors seeing it in person. I would have assumed that price point was lower. So thirty thousand is a pretty high price point. I'm su- quite yeah, surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So、oh. th- that's pl- a pleasant thing. Like I'm pleasantly surprised that it's thirty thousand. Yeah, thirty. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe less. Thirty. Yeah, I don't. Even twenty thousand is still surprising to me. So yeah. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I would have imagined、yeah. that the price point would have been about ten thousand. Would have been the cutoff where people would have been sort of dubious to buy online only. Ten or less is easy. Ten, ten or less is easy. We'll put it as a tiered thing then. Ten or less, ten thousand or less, easy. Ten thousand to thirty thousand.、Uh, di- It's a- Able、yeah. to be done, yeah. Possible, able to be but, done, yeah. But not easy. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Okay. okay. Okay, okay, yeah. You can you can sell a painting, yeah. With, but I'm not Gagosian or Pace Gallery, so I don't know whether they have been able to sell a painting for a hundred thousand without you know the collector seeing it. I don't know. Of course、uh, they have. They, yeah. they can sell a painting without even showing the, somebody the painting. Yeah, but I think I've, I've read on Artsy or Artnet's report about that. Yeah, they they did say anything that's less than ten is very easy to sell online. They have a report out there. Maybe that's where I got that statistic. Yeah, yeah. maybe you have as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you have an online gallery, and do you have a brick and mortar place? So in the U.S. and Massachusetts, anyway, when we. Start to open up again. I think it was around July. I got a, a pop up space in Wellesley. It's a, a fluent town. Your Wellesley College is there, fluent. So I took a pop up space there for two months. Very interestingly, I didn't sell anything there. Everything I sold that were all online, still. But I had a space just to you know try it out, you know, just to see how it is、uh, physically whether it worked. But probably it's a town as well that didn't work. For me, well, it still was a pandemic too. Yeah,、so、like, true. Was... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we had restriction. We didn't couldn't have more than six people in the gallery at one time or something. Yeah, I have not gone to as many openings and events and art exhibitions by far as I used to. So, like, it doesn't surprise me that not a lot of people have attended even. Yeah, that's what's still in twenty twenty. Then, of course, you you did mention about how the rent in April when I started my gallery, I already been planning. Okay, when this COVID is over, I'm gonna have a physical、uh, space. I've already knew that I wanted to be in South End, so in this place called、uh, the Sowa Art District. So it's an art district with a lot of galleries. It's kind of an art area, art district. So people will come to look at art. People frequent all the art galleries. So it just makes sense in business wise to be located in a city and in an area where people would go for art. If it is not for COVID, I wouldn't have gotten a space because there was a waiting list to get in to rent before COVID. So because of COVID, a lot of galleries left. They shut down or left. And I'm sure there still will be more leaving as well, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, just changing over, like you know, some people like you know, go there,、uh, move in, and for like six months, and then they move again. You know, because they found that there's no foot traffic. So yeah, I was because of COVID that I was able to、uh, secure a physical space, you know, and I signed a long-term lease, you know, to be there. I've been there since September 2020, so a year and a half now, I think. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, and so how is that now sort of balancing itself out? So like what, if you don't mind, like what's your like percentage of online sales versus physical sales? Still a lot online. A lot being like 90%? <laughs> no, 80, 20, I think. Yeah, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Still well, a lot. I, I, yeah. I think that's utterly fascinating. So like, I mean, the... The amount of online sales, I mean, I've been buying work online, you know, and so like I'm not uh, immune to it and, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. participating in it as much as anybody else. But it, it becomes like, how do you then get people interested in an online thing? Because, I mean, the online market, you know, between social media and just the existence of websites, like it's inundated. There are new galleries everywhere. There are new opportunities everywhere. People can get, contact artists directly through Instagram. Like, so like, how do you like manage to like sort of cut through all of that to get to people actually finding you and buying from you? Yeah, so I also have other things that I do to collect a list, for example, going to art fairs. I am fascinated with art fairs. I've only participated in one and we broke even. So that's it. Like we didn't we didn't make any money, but we didn't lose any money. So we considered that a win. My physical space is for me to display the exhibition. Right. So I would say the function of the physical space is that. So it's like a place where you can display art physically in real life, IRL, you know. But my online or my platforms, I am on Artsy, I'm on my website, I'm on social media. I also, you know, you do things like, for example, you pay for Google ads or you pay for, you know, stuff like that. You need to, to get eyeballs, you know, to get yourself out there so that people see you. Yeah. And then we build content, for example, every exhibition I have. I always have a, an artist talk where I stream live on Instagram and Facebook. So all those are tools that I use to promote my work, my exhibitions, my, and my artists and the work that I sell. So yeah, it's interesting how, yeah, I'm not a big business. So I, I you know, what I make is, you know, comfortable for, to pay rent, to pay my staff, to pay the artists. Yeah. I'm not running it like as if I'm going to be a millionaire. No, I'm running it just so that I could cover costs so that I could keep doing what I do that I love, you know? Yeah, my gallery is showing work that are not decorative. And uh, that's great. I'm tired of decorative work. I mean, I respect people who make decorative works because I, I decorate my home, but I'm, and I'm a little tired of like the decorative galleries. Yeah, so, you know, my collectors are not collectors who come and buy I work to match the couch. That's what Bed Bath & Beyond and Ikea are for. That's right, yeah. So my passion also is to promote emerging artists, artists who are, you know, like let's say they're freshly graduated from college or something, and they need a platform, a place to show. You know, a there are a lot of gatekeeping in, in this field. So what I want to do as a gallerist is to give these artists a chance. Well, see, as a person who is later in his career, I'd say I'm mid-career at this point, probably, but like those opportunities weren't there when I was young. I feel like I hear a lot more about galleries these days choosing to you know, engage with young and emerging artists more so than I remember 30 years ago when I first got out of school. And so like, mm -hmm. I find that very fascinating that yeah. because 
there, there's a certain thing that I see is like, well, there's a probably you know, the potential problem with that is, is like a lot of artists who are, let's say, picked up by a gallery that just works with emerging artists. When they get bigger, there's that fear that they're going to skip and go to a bigger gallery. And so then you've invested all that time, energy and money in their career, and then they just leave and then you end up earning nothing off of them once they're making real money from somebody else. Mm. That's sad. Like the fact that that even happens. That is true, though. I mean, if it's a small gallery, you can't really manage somebody's career who's like, let's say Jonas Woods or something, you know, or somebody who moved from like small gallery to a big gallery. Or let's say, uh, what's her name? Jenny Seville, who went to Gagosian from a smaller gallery. Or like Simone Lee, who was with David Kodansky and then went to Hauser and Worth. So even in galleries, there are hierarchies, right? They are the small galleries like me, and then they are the mid-size and blah, 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 you know? And then they have the blue chip, right? So all these galleries have their function. I wouldn't be able to uh, uh, manage a career of Simone Lee or Jenny Seville. It's true because handling somebody's portfolio that has that's worth millions of dollars is actually a different ballgame. It is, but like I mean, it, it's almost it's sort of sad because it almost like puts these like galleries into like different class systems. Like so, like they're small galleries, and small galleries aren't almost aren't allowed to grow and get bigger because they're not allowed to keep these better, more expensive artists, but they, mm. they go on to bigger galleries. Small galleries can't get bigger, but yet most small galleries want to get bigger, but like sort of the way the system is created, there is again, sort of that like small gallery, mid-sized gallery, blue chip gallery, sort of hierarchy that like artists would sort of climb that ladder, hopefully in their careers, but the galleries can't climb that ladder. <laughs> Yeah, but you. I think you know, depending on the galleries, yeah, some galleries can evolve, yeah, to become a bigger gallery. I would say, who are these? Like uh, you know, or let's say, let's just ex take example of some New York women art gallerists, like let's say Mar Marian Bosky or you know Marian. What's her name? Uh, I was Mary, Mary Boone. Yeah, she, yeah, Mary Boone. This is the one but who I went to jail. Mary Boone started off as a pretty high gallery. Yeah. <laughs> Arnie Glimshaw started as a, oh, hang on. Was he rich before he started? Uh, the, the Pace Gallery founder. <laughs> um, I do not know for sure, but I would take a wager. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, I want to grow. I do. I do. I want to grow and I want to grow with my artists. Yes. It's just, it's very hard though. There's a lot of obstacles to get there. But I would love to. I'm, 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 my gallery's young. Uh, it's only been established, what, you know, less than two years. Right. So, like, so what are you doing online? So you've got live videos that you're doing with, with discussions and all this kind of stuff. Like, what other sort of techniques have you been finding? Because, like, I'm fascinated by it. Like, I'm fascinated with the whole NFT stuff. Like, I mean, all these kinds of little different various forms of, like, digital art commerce kind of like thing. A lot of times when you have built a, a list, you have to nurture them. You have to take care of those, that list as well. So a lot of sales are repeat sales, right? Besides all the contents I produce, all the, you know, Instagram posts, a really good artsy presence. I do use artsy because I believe artsy is one of the ones that is effective compared to first dibs or I don't know who they are. Are they, are they others? Yeah. 
I was going to ask how effective is artsy because it, from an artist's perspective, it's not super user-friendly and, and effective for us, but I, I, it seems like the gallery seems to use it well. Yeah, it is useful because it's an e-commerce and artsy also produces content like they write articles and stuff. They promote your artists. Like they, they will send out newsletters saying, Top 10 artists that you should watch and all those, you know, those are all like, you know, they're helpful if you, one of your artists get mentioned. I know. I get them all the time. <laughs> they do send a lot of uh, emails out on there. Yeah. Yeah. Too many in my personal opinion, but yes. And you know, like on Artsy platform, they will give you the report on what is your most popular work. And those are all data, right? You can just then use those data to then do more with it, right? You know, then you can adjust your marketing strategy based on it. Like, oh, this painting or this painter is uh, more popular than others, then do more with that or something, you know. Artsy has been a really good platform for me. I'm staying on it, you know, I I find it very useful. I have said, I've sold work on it too. So it's, it's good for me, um, yeah. So you're going back to your tech background and using all of the like data-driven information to be able to sort of like re, allocate resources and time and energy towards different things based on like basically the the data-based feedback that you're receiving from these different things. Yeah, data science. It's just, it's just the future. We are living in it right now. Look at Facebook. They're taking all your data. That's how they, they curate uh, all the information for you. Everybody's taking all of our data. I mean, Google's got data. That's like, right. Even the games we play on our phone is taking data from us. Like, I mean, all these big I'm not going to get into my whole like <laughs> conspiracy theory about all the corporations taking all of our. I mean, I at one point I was really afraid when when Apple came out with that thumbprint thing on the phone. Uh, I was like, yes. they now have my thumbprint. I mean, for fuck's sake, they could like frame me for murder by putting my thumbprint some murder scene. I mean, like, oh, <laughs> I, I went down a horrible vivid, rabbit hole on that. Vivid imagination. I do. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> but. Oh. Well, this is the world we live in. Um, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I'm not an expert in uh, yeah, how we navigate that. But of course, you know, we are living in a data science world where it's data driven. You know, you want to think that you are an individual, you have freedom. Do we, you know, <laughs> we, everything we see now is all kind of pushed to us. You know, everything is pushed to you, uh, sponsored this, sponsored that. You see that. If, do you not want to then engage with social media at all? Is it possible? If I had a choice, I kind of wish to go back to the days pre-social media. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not. It's part of our lives. Yeah, yeah. I know, but I mean, like back then, it was, it was, it was pushed into our brains through advertising on television. So, like, I mean, one way or another, corporations are going to get to us. So, you know, they're just coming up with more cunning ways to get it into our brains. So. More and more, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, the new generation, what Gen Z, or you know, anybody who's born in the nineties or yeah, the two thousands actually. Isn't it 2000? Yeah. Uh -huh. They are so used to it. In fact, it's their life. They don't even think about it. I know. I even saw a thing statistically saying that they're having less sex as well. I was just like, oh, that's such a sad life. <laughs> <laughs> but they have sex in different ways, maybe. I don't know. 
<laughs> maybe they get stimulated in other ways. I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing it, but it's just sort of, it's a fascinating sort of uh, generational changes. Yeah. I think it's also the fear, isn't it, of STs and stuff like that We that we've been trying to tell them as well, isn't it? It, it is possible. We put some fear into them about it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder what's the uh, reason for that. Uh, is it? Are you sure it's not COVID? No, this was pre-COVID that I remember reading the statistics. Okay. So like, okay, okay. But, well, yeah, COVID, that affected everybody's sex life also. But that's a whole different podcast. But That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true, though. Right now, you know, social media, like, for example, TikTok, people are more interested in watching TikTok than, you know, I guess, talking to their partners. Yes, it's like you've been in my house with my wife. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, yeah, she does got, YouTube. She doesn't do TikTok, TikTok, but, you know, same difference. Oh, YouTube. Yeah, YouTube has the same, yeah, has a lot of content. Yeah, you get addicted to it. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I, that is one addiction I have not gotten. I've, I've had many addictions in my life. Like, I used to be a drug addict. I, I smoked. I did caffeine. Oh. I still smoke, Like, but I smoked other things. And so, like, I've had lots of addictions, but, like, luckily, YouTube or TikTok is not one of my current addictions. <laughs> Maybe in time. Yeah. But getting back to like sort of the, the, the website and the stuff, it's like one thing that I noticed about your website, and maybe I'm wrong, but I didn't see prices of artwork on the websites. There are prices. Okay, there are prices. There are, uh, so, yeah, it's uh, in purchases, the tab above the website. My website has tabs. That's actually a purchase. And then you can just go into Oh, yes, indeed work. you do. Yeah. I mean, it, it be because it's a long-standing sort of like battle of like, do you put prices? Do you not put prices? You know, why mm. either way? I like the idea of prices personally, because there are lots of artists out there that like, I would be willing to like save up to buy something, you know, kind of thing. If I knew what the price was. I, be I believe in transparency. Yeah. So my website has works that are priced and also you can buy them. And, you know, RC too, right? So RC as well. All the works that I have on RC, they have prices. And you can even buy them. But not. But RC does allow you to set, put up contact the buyer or contact the gallery. No, I don't do that. No, no, no. I choose the buy now or make an offer uh, button. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like to a certain extent, like the choice to not put prices online, I feel like is just a continuation of the not giving out prices on a on a sheet or not putting the prices on the wall at a physical gallery, which I often found to just be horribly pretentious and just snobby. Like it was just like. I mean, I literally one time I went to a gallery and I found this piece that I absolutely loved and I could afford it at the time. I had a good job at that time. And I and I and I said, how much is this? The lady looked at me with this attitude of like, if you have to ask, you probably can't afford it. And I was just like, oh. you know, I walked in here with cash in my pocket ready to buy this piece. But fuck you. I'm not going to buy it from you because that was just I know. bitchy. Yeah, that's another aspect of galleries, the traditional galleries that I also am trying to move away from, not putting prices and treating everybody like scum. You know, when they walk in, that's not what I want my gallery to be. Yeah, so I, I believe in transparency uh, very much. I have also a lot of collectors who tell me that they like to see prices on my website. And I do, uh, you can buy the work and all that. I don't have everything on my website because the e-commerce platform, I wanted to kind of edit it to offer only the latest exhibitions 
the past exhibitions, you know, they, you can find it, but you have to dig deep into the website or you can just, you know, contact us uh, or go to Artsy. Artsy, everything's there. So, yeah. yeah, you're right about that. The gallery system used to be this where they make it so austere and so scary and so church-like that you, you know, you walk. It's, it's so funny you say that because my father's a priest, but yeah. Oh, Sorry, sorry to offend. It does not offend me. It's fine. I don't mute your family. Okay, okay. <laughs> because I publish all my prices, I have no way to discriminate anybody, right? You know, doesn't matter what you wear, or you wear Gucci, you know, shoes in, or you, you're wearing torn sandals into my gallery, you will still be given the same price, right? Because it's published. Yeah, I used to work at a store in San Francisco back in what late '90s, early 2000s. And when I first worked there, it was a, a reasonably high-end fashion store. And they, the people that worked, they said, "Oh, be sure to always look at the women's shoes and handbags before you like give them the you know whatever amount of service their shoes and handbags deserve." And I turned to them and I was yeah. like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And so like I made it sort of my life's mission to help everybody that walked in in flip flops and the, the the roughest the outfits and all this. And I ended up being the top salesperson in the corporation. Because I you know, well, treated you everybody equally. I didn't give anybody better service or anything like that based on whatever they were wearing. And it did me well. And it was a very good business model. And the fact that that kind of a business model of like, be sure to look at a woman's shoes and handbags is just so bad. Because I, most, of, yeah. I, mean, I know a lot of millionaires in my lifetime and most millionaires wear like just jeans and a t-shirt and probably shoes with holes in them because they're so cheap. That's how they became millionaires because they're so thrifty. And yeah. so like, they don't like to show off their wealth. That's the thing is like, if somebody is showing off their wealth, then they're sort of nouveau riche. They're not actually wealthy. So like they, they're just, they're just, pe they're just peacocking a little bit. That's right. Yes, 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 yeah. If you're rich, you don't have to say it, you know. Who famously said, if you have power, but you don't have to say it. So the real power means you don't have to say you have power. So it's the same, yeah, it applies to that as well, you know, in terms of wealth and how, yeah. It's interesting. So gallery business, yeah, that's it, you know. I'm uh, That's uh, where I am at this point and all I stand for. Transparency, and championing emerging artists, and of course, you know, minorities, you know, people who are like me. That's what I also want to uh, emphasize. I want to work with people who are like me, female and minorities. I, I, I do work with men too and white cis men. <laughs> For example, the exhibition I have right now is a two-person exhibition. Brian Book is a very much a heterosexual white man uh, who, who is uh, I'm not sure he's 49 okay years with old. being outed um, like that, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so... I do. I like to champion art that uh, artists and art that are kind of not so seen or they're overlooked. You know, uh, Brian's uh, story is interesting because he did uh, get a painting degree from Bennington College in Vermont, um, but he didn't pursue that career. He went to become a tattoo artist. He had a really good, successful tattoo uh, business for that long, but then now in his uh, late 40s, he wants to revisit his painting, you know, calling. And he's only just done what he's doing now for like a year and a half. And I'm, I'm already giving him a show. So I recognize talent. 
And I also know that he's a really nice guy, a really good guy. I, I enjoy his company. And when I Zoom with him, the first time I met him on, on Zoom, you know, we had a really interesting conversation. And he didn't get put off by my, my personality. And so we started working together. So why would people be put off by your personality? I, I'm, I can sometimes be a little honest you know, and with my critiques. So some artists get very hurt and they don't speak to me anymore. Oh yeah. We're artists are like, we are the most sensitive little flowers. We cannot take criticism very well. Are you like that, Matthew? I can be depending on the tone in which somebody takes against uh, my work. Um, you know, like if it, if it's a balanced objective critique, then I will absolutely listen to it. But if it's like a personal attack like the last time i had a critique the person sort of started in with me basically starting with i don't like male white artists and your work oh. blah 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 and i'm just like okay wow this would note this was never going to work from like the first sentence oh that's really that's 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 hurt that's crazy that's that's not nice he said that person attacked you not your work. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and there's a huge difference between like a criticism of my work versus a criticism of, of me as a person. And like, I am perfectly fine with people giving critical feedback uh, about my work. But if they somehow transcend that into sort of questioning me personally, then that's where I'm like, okay, that, that has nothing to do with it. Like, you shouldn't be talking about that. But, yeah. but if somebody wants to work with somebody, going back to our previous conversation about relationships, it is about whether or not you like and enjoy working with the person also. So like, there is that balancing act of like, while you have to make great work that somehow engages people, interests people, whatever word you want to put to it, you also, like, if you want to be in this arts industry, you also have to be basically, I'm not going to say you have to be like great or pandering or any of that kind of stuff, but you have to at least not be an asshole. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I mean, there are a lot of artists who are very talented, but then they're assholes. So it's very hard to work with them. It makes it harder. Yeah, it's true. I want to work with people I enjoy working with as well. Sometimes, you know, you learn by working with them and then you realize they, oh, then they're really, you know, and then you don't work with them anymore. <laughs> that becomes like just a one-off uh, relationship, which is not ideal because you want to help build the career and you want to have a, you know, a long-term relationship with an artist. But if they behave in a way that is, yeah, undesirable, what do you do? Yeah. You know, the social skill sometimes is a little lacking. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, artists are not uh, known publicly for their social graces. Yeah. We, we are generally seen as like uh, recluses, hermits, uh, or addicts of some sort. So we often are drunks or drug addicts. So like they're <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. or have psychiatric problems or any other kind, like some of us are on the spectrum, you know, I mean, like there's all kinds of things that are sort of oftentimes very inherent in being in the creative industries. Right. It's a, a different side of your brain, right? That you're using, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, just to be clear, I don't mean any of those things as negative attributes. However, the rest no, of society sees yeah. those as negative attributes. Yeah. But like in the creative fields, like we're like, oh, you're schizophrenic? Cool. Let's have a good conversation. Like that's fun. But like 
out yeah. outside of the art world, they would be like, oh, you're schizophrenic? No, we're not going to hire you for this job. Like, like so. I know. I know. It should be a strength, isn't it? Like, you know, like ADD should be a strength. In the arts, it absolutely could be your, like, superpower to be ADD. Like, that's great. Yeah. But in other fields, it's a detriment. So, yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, that's why we're in the, in the art world. Yes. Indeed. That's why we're here. Well, but going back to that. Okay. So, like, when you opened your gallery only two years ago, how did you choose which artists to work with? Because, like, quite honestly, in this day and age, you could be working with artists anywhere in the world because they can just ship it to you. They can just send you images and you can just literally work with anybody in the world. So what were some of the characteristics that like says to you, like, this is somebody I want to work with, I guess, from like different levels, like so from the artistic side, as far as what they produce, but then maybe is there some element of like their CV that impressed you? And then of course, the aspect of their personality, what's the combination and the factors of like work versus like background versus personality that sort of said, yes, that's somebody I want to work with. Well, I think first of all, the work has to pass the mark, you know, <laughs> like. Uh, but what's that mark? Well, it's arbitrary, so you know, it's subjective. Art is subjective. You know, what I like may not be what you like, right? So it has to be my judgment. Unfortunately, because it's my gallery, yes, it has to be something I like, something that I think it, you know, it's good. Again, the word good, it's, you know, up to debate, you know, it's subjective. And then second, of course, you know, the CV. I always give chance to more artists who, who are just starting, who are emerging. And then the third thing is if I get along with them. If I tick all three boxes, yes, that's it, you know. Uh, now, location, it's, it's more complicated than that. Boston audience or collectors love to support their own market. It's the same here in Prague. Like they love Czech artists and they don't love outsiders. Yeah, they don't like it if you like show someone outside of Boston and they kind of, you know, they feel a little suspicious of you. They feel betrayed or something, you know. I look at Tom Brady. Uh, he just left and he wrote a long goodbye letter without mentioning the Patriots and they were so hurt. All the publication, <laughs> you know, like kind of now are saying, Tom Brady, you traitor. You know, how dare you? You spent 20 years in, in Boston and you never thank us, you know, blah, blah, blah. I try to incorporate uh, in my program, right? I show maybe nine to 10 shows a year. I show, I try to include a local artist in my program. But I am interested in other artists as well from New York, from anywhere in this country, okay? I have yet to show uh, an overseas artist except from Japan. I did have a four-person show, end of 2020, they're all Japanese women. So I did that. But I learned a lot from that because the shipping cost me a lot of money. And customs. Holy shit, I hate customs so much. That's right, yeah, yeah. The logistic, uh, you know, getting the work here, you know, and then to ship the work back. Well, customs does not have any sort of part of their forms that says this is going for exhibition and will be returned. Like, because everything they think goes through customs, they believe has been sold and there's a price point on it. And so theoretically, you would end up paying customs to go into the United States. Then you would have to pay customs again going out of the United States. And it's just like, come on, they really need a, a new like 
little, another checkbox on their little check sheet that says for exhibition purpose only kind of thing. Like, God. Yeah, they should. Yeah, they should have a separate form for us, you know, people who are in the artistic industry. Yeah, it's not easy shipping. And the, as I, since COVID actually has gone up a lot, you know, the shipping cost, FedEx. Oh, and the shipping time as well. Everything's a lot slower. That's true. Yeah, everything's slower. Yeah, everything takes, uh, yeah, requires more money. Yeah. I do get approached by uh, some European artists who want to show in this country because they want to show in the US. You know, it's a very attractive prospect. I was I was recently talking to somebody here in, in Europe, and I said, why don't you show many artists from America? And they said, well, because American artists have tons of opportunities. They don't need opportunities here in Europe. And I'm like, every American artist wants to show in Europe. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, we all Yeah, want I know. But they think that we have tons of opportunities in America, but then American artists are sitting there going, we the there are no opportunities in America, so we look to Europe, and Europe's like, no, we don't want you. It's just like, God, it's a catch twenty two. Yeah, the grease. What's it called? The grass is greener, or something. You know, uh, you always feel that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole gallery system is very different in the in different cultures as well. Like, I mean, I didn't realize how different until like I, again, I lived in the United Arab Emirates recently, and then now I live in Europe. Every part of the arts industry is very different, from writing grants to just like artist statements, even how they're written, um, how you present work. Like in the United States, to me, it was sort of obligatory. Keep in mind, this is you know twenty some odd years ago, but it was obligatory to frame your work before you put it into a gallery because like you wanted to present it that. In Europe, nobody frames anything. No, 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 <laughs> like at all. What? No, no. Wow! It's just bare canvases, and they and there you go, and that's it. And it's little nuanced things like this that are very interesting to me. Because I, that is interesting. Because yeah. one of the big costs of doing an exhibition in America was always like, oh, okay, if I'm going to have this exhibition, I'm going to have to frame everything. And like, that's a big cost yeah. with no guarantee of yeah. sales. So it's like, I yeah. got to lay this out and I don't know if I'm going to get my money back. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Especially if it's a canvas. A lot of artists just already have their canvas scratch on a stretcher bar. But if it is like a print or a, a photography, you know, those that would require framing. Yeah, yeah photographer here. Yeah, that's, that, yeah I know. <laughs> yes. And galleries usually hesitate to fork out the framing cost because it's expensive. I've never and had you, a gallery. If you couldn't sell it. I've never had a gallery pay for framing ever. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I mean, it's the industry I went into. That's the, that was just the cost of doing business. It depends on the on the artist sometimes as well, and oh, it, it, the arrangement as well. Before you start, you can say, oh, you can split the cost of framing first or, or something. I have had people offer that, but they they always didn't work out because like I'm a I'm, I I like really nice frames. They're very expensive. Oh, that bad. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm that's, not talking like gold gilded, crazy Rococo frames. I mean, but just like nice frames, like you know. So yeah. Anyways, yeah. That, that, well, that's my snobbery. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you have standards. Well, you know, it, it's funny. Like in the in that industry, so like in the printmaking, works on paper, photography part. Like we often think of like we're like, okay, I'm gonna buy frames for an exhibition, but 
I'm going to buy like a standardized size frame that I potentially can then get, use again in my next exhibition because, you know, chances are most of the work will not sell. So I can reuse this frame with if I just continue to work at the same scale. So like we like to invest in slightly nicer frames because we expect to use them for three to five exhibitions. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, versus painters who like, you know, when they do it generally, you know, they get sold and the frames go with it and then so on and so on. So yeah, it's a, it's a very different subset of the arts industry, you know, works on paper. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Painting, there's a hierarchy as well in terms of you know, the medium. Yes, works on paper are at near the bottom. <laughs> we know. Generally, when it comes to collectors, it, it works on paper. So photographs slash works on paper are introductory level type of things. Like this, what art you know, art collectors start with before they then upgrade. Because even some of the most expensive photographs are still cheaper than some of the least expensive paintings because it's reproducible and there are multiples of it, and it makes sense. And it's a great avenue to get collectors buying because not everybody could throw down $30,000 for a painting, but they could throw down $3,000 for a nice photographer or a print. Yeah. Well, the good thing about your practice is that you can go to NFT very easily. Please don't start me on NFTs. I, I'm, I'm not a fan at this moment. You're not? <laughs> I want to be a fan, but I'm not. <laughs> okay. Are right. you? I am uh, sitting on the fence. I don't know yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm watching. I have a friend who I went to grad school with who's doing very well in the NFT industry. And, and he has wow. offered to help me and guide me in it. And I, I'm still trepidatious, let's say. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the theory of it. The theory is magnificent. Right. Well, because like a lot of us are, you know, we work digitally, graphic designers even, or printmakers or photographers, and we have millions of digital files that I wouldn't put in a gallery as my gallery series, like that I want to make a book out of and like do all these like really pompous sort of traditional things with. But I have lots of like little test ideas and sub works that have no connection to anything else that like would be magnificent as NFTs. I just haven't sort of decided to do that yeah. yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe one day. I know. I need to get in touch with him and, and, and hear more about it here. Because my biggest problem is the, the what they call the gas fees for creating NFTs. So, like, I, as the person making an NFT, I have to pay a, a quote-unquote gas fee, which can be up to, like, $75 to just produce an wow. NFT. Uh, to become part really? of the blockchain. I mean, don't get me wrong. They vary from like $20 all the way up to like $75. I've got like 10,000 images that I would like to make as NFTs. So, I mean, that would be $750,000 that I don't have. <laughs> so I'm just like. Yeah. Wow. That's a good point. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know yet about NFT. So, and right now I wouldn't be doing it. 
has so I have so many uh, artists that I'm working with that are doing traditional uh, medium. So yeah. Well, my my other problem with NFTs, which is a, a very personal problem, I'm sure for me, but I'm sure other people can relate to this, is like I still feel I feel like a lot of the NFT world is a bit of a cult personality. I feel like it's high school. I feel like it's Kickstarter. It's basically like if you have lots of online friends quote unquote friends, but like online followers and whatever on Instagram or, or whatever, or even a good email newsletter list, then you'll probably do really well with NFTs. But I'm horrible with that whole online sphere of like getting friends and followers. And then to put yourself out there and say, now please support my thing. Like, I, I hate that. Mm. I fucking, I mean, it's, I see. it's such a, I, I feel like it like I'm the I'm the outsider trying to make friends with the the jocks and the cheerleaders in high school and the popular kids and like I I just I didn't like playing those games in high school. I really don't want to play those games in my 40s. Like I don't I don't like it. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, no. I think you like you have to do what's within your comfort zone. Yeah. There's so many ways to make art. NFT should, you know, if I could hand it all Don't off to somebody to else to do for me and I knew nothing about what was going on and whether or not I was selling or being popular, I would be happy with that. But it's like if I have to do it and then I have to ask my friends to support it and post on my social media and do it, fuck that. I'm over it. <laughs> I know. I know. I know the feeling. Like I won't even do yeah. a Kickstarter. Like, I mean, I I admire all the people that are willing to do Kickstarters, but like, I will not do it. It makes me just anxious even thinking about putting up a Kickstarter, like, because it's so personal in a, such a way that like putting a piece. It's like begging as well. Yes. Yeah. It feels like me basically saying, I have this great idea, but I'm broke. Could you help me out? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> That, that there's nothing that makes me feel positive about that situation. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a yeah. It's, it could be your pride or yeah. It is pride. It absolutely is pride. It's pride and yeah. and and well, also, also not yeah. wanting to show weakness. You know. So like to me, it could be principle. Yeah, as well. Your principle, like you don't want to like you know uh, ask for handouts. That's also never. I never want to ask for. Don't get me wrong. I'll ask for handouts from like my family, but not from my friends. <laughs> Mm, yeah and i also total strangers that would be weird yeah yeah because it is it is kinda... and it, yeah it just yeah I'm, I'm anxious enough about other things i don't need that in my life but anyways back mm, to you that's right <laughs> i guess the question is sort of like moving forward with a gallery at this point so like do you have what are some of like your potential ideas for what's going to happen like theoretically post pandemic like so like is this the kind of thing like do you think that the model the industry model is changing and that you will primarily still put all of your or majority of your effort onto online or do you believe that a lot of it's going to go back to like the in real life like brick and mortar what's your sort of business plan business model for the post pandemic gallery world well i think what i'm doing actually is it's going to apply in the next 5 10 years Online, it's going to be very important. It is important right now. It will be important in the future for me anyway, because foot traffic into galleries has already reduced anyway, even before COVID. People uh, buying online has been a culture that has been rising, you know, with Amazon and Etsy and eBay and all those platforms. 
it has been rising and COVID has sort of accelerated it, right? Now, I don't know when COVID is going to go away. It's never going to go away. We keep getting all these variants, right? So, okay, let's imagine the scenario that it's COVID it disappears, right? In the next two months. Nothing's going to change. It's going to be the same. We're going to all be buying online. When I really want to put something in front of someone's face, that will be the art fairs. Because I went to three art fairs last year, spring break, art on paper, and I went to Untitled. Only one art fair I broke even, but I made money on the other two. So, wow, yeah. that's in fact, I sold out. Great. I sold out at Untitled, yeah. I'm very pleasantly surprised by that. Like, I mean, because I, I have a very doom and gloom sort of perspective on the arts industry as a whole at the moment. But so it's nice to hear that there are people that are doing well at things like art fairs, which we're hearing nothing but doom and gloom about. Yes, yeah, so I think yeah, it's, it's interesting that the the industry seems to report sometimes really bad stuff about art fairs, and then sometimes like really positive. But a lot of times you hear negative stuff about art fairs, but you know it's still around, it's still existing. So collectors must be buying. There is a demand and supply principle there, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by it. Art fairs are one of those really interesting things because like they, to a certain extent, I love them. I've been to many of them, but they, they more or less are the commodification of the art world. I mean, it's a bit literally like it's just a, a transactional situation and a networking situation. Like that's all it's there for. Like, you're not going to go there and talk art. You're not going to have any great, like, oh, why did you make your work and all these great sort of insightful things is none of that shit's going to happen. It's just you meet the right people, you make some deals. So like it's connections, networking and commodification. And in many ways, that's great because it's what makes the art world go round. But in many ways, that's sad for me because like I'd like to think there's more to it than that. Yeah, I know. Well, I think you have to be selective with the kind of art fair that you participate in. That you know, so because there are so many these days. There's so many bad ones. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I go to Spring Break because it's a curated uh, exhibition. The whole concept is all curation. You have to submit a, a big proposal, and you know, you have to uh, write a whole thesis of why you were showing uh, what you're showing, and then Untitled as well. Untitled is actually a, a curated. They want to pre-approve everything six months ahead, and you know, the thesis has to be very strong and cogent. Uh, otherwise, the other small affairs are really crappy. You know, I don't name them, but you know, you don't go to those because those are the affairs that are meant for decorators, to or people who just who don't know anything about art. So you have to be selective. For me, I might get into art fairs like the Independent, the Armory. You know, those are, I would say, notable, respectable ones, right? Expensive. Yeah, they can be. Yeah, they're all. Yeah, they're all expensive. Even the bad ones are expensive. So. Oh, I mean, with the la the one I helped out with back in two thousand one. She paid like $15,000 for her booth. And then we had to ship all the Who, work. Which art fair? Toronto Art Fair. Oh, Toronto, yeah. No, $15,000 is a standard fee. Oh, but no, then we still had to ship all the work there. And we took like, you know, monumental sculptures and all. I mean, it was a ridiculous amount of money. 
as far as I'm concerned. But she, but she she broke even. She made she made her money. So like good for her. But fuck that. To the the fear of like throwing down that much money with the hope of making money back has got to be nerve wracking for a gallerist. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a good exposure. Even you know, you have to think about it as a marketing. It's like you put it in, in your marketing budget, you know, and think that hey, you know, the list that I can build, being out there, you know, and also the kind of reputation you gain, you know, from participating in office. Like it or not, a lot of artists like it if you go to office. They are more drawn to you if the, if you have a track record in office because. They, artists, a lot of artists want to be uh, participating in artists. So if you never go to IFA, they're like, oh, you're, you're just really a really small town, you know, little little gallery. We don't want to show with you. It's true. Yeah. I mean, there is that sort of credibility that says, like, not only are you a small town art gallery, but that the, the work that you are, you know, uh, exhibiting has credibility in other markets. That's right. Exactly. It's true. All right. So to wrap this up, do you have any sort of advice or any sort of ideas that you want to share with the listeners? Advice to who, the artists or to uh, people who want to be in the art business or, or the, who wants to open a gallery? Whatever you think you have the best advice for. <laughs> well, so I would say, you know, for people who want to get into the gallery business about that, because, you know, that's what I'm in. You know, a gallery is a business. First and foremost, okay, you gotta have uh, capital. You need to have a, a business plan, okay. Know that you have to pay insurance for your, all your art; it costs money. You have to pay rent, okay. You have to pay your staff. So it's not just like, oh, I'm gonna just open a little gallery, and you know, let's see what happens. No. Have a business plan. Have some kind of, you know, capital that will sustain you, you know, when you get in and, you know, start that business. It's a business. Oh, yeah. I've heard stories that you should have a minimum of like six months worth of, of running capital in savings if you want to run a gallery. That's right. Minimum six That's months. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, absolutely. You know, and I am a big supporter of how social media these days is actually really helping the art business, especially Instagram. So, yeah, uh, everybody should, you know, embrace it. I'm sorry, Matthew, but yeah. Yeah, I would love to embrace it, except I, I just don't even know how to. Like, I, I don't get it. I'm, I'm, I'm a. It's an important tool. I think I'm like, I'm not sure if like I'm OCD or like I like systems. And, and I feel like Instagram is, is arbitrary and random. Like I, I can't figure it out. Like I want to be able to figure it out and there's no figuring it out. And even once you do think you figure it out, they change the, the algorithm on you. <laughs> I know they do that. Yeah. I'm so, yeah. It's Facebook because they're owned by Facebook. <laughs> it's Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, social media is a very good way. I think as an artist, for me, I, the way I find my artists a lot of times is out on Instagram. And when I meet an artist, I immediately ask them, do you have an Instagram account? Because that's how I see your portfolio. That's how I see your work. You know, that's the quickest way because I don't have time to like go and, you know, studio visit. Right? If you live far away from me or you're in a different state, like, don't you think it's like so easy? It's So the hierarchy. So an Instagram account is more important than a website. 
Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, because it's quicker than than a website. Also, a lot of websites are crappy. <laughs> I totally agree. I yeah, I teach web design, and fuck, there's a lot of ugly websites in the world. Yeah, as as an artist, you should really should um yeah really clean your website, groom it, and you know put the latest work first, and you know all those you have, and then your CV has to be the latest and all that. But a lot of artists don't pay attention to that, so. That's why Instagram is a better, yeah, platform. Uh, it's great. I mean, it basically, like you know, the more people I hear telling me like the Instagram is the best way to go, like I I need to listen to this instead of like say no, no, no. I need to go. Okay, like yeah. five, like, five, <laughs> ten, twenty people have now said this. Like, really, this is something I should be listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Try it. Oh, I <laughs> I do it. I'm on there. I just the, yeah. There's a, there's a longer issue on that. This is like the one of the things I have a pet peeve about Instagram is, is that you should be posting on a regular basis. Well, like I my work right now takes between six to eight months for me to finish one piece. Oh, so that's not really Instagram speed. That's not gonna. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, they want you to post one a day. Yeah, I'm not making one. I'm making if I'm lucky, like three a year. Oh, I get it. Oh, well, well, you do it at your own pace and your own way then, you know? <laughs> I know. It's really hard. But I mean, that's the thing is like to a certain extent, like the Instagram sort of pace is not made for every artist. I mean, what if you're an oil painter or a marble sculptor or these kinds of things like that take, you know, months and, and years to complete a single piece? Like, Instagram is not made for those people. So like it has its place. I agree 100%, but like it's not it's not necessarily for every medium. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like I, okay. I was talking I was talking to a, a a glass sculpture and he was telling me that he would take a piece of glass and he would put it in the kiln and then has to sit in the kiln for 6 months. Mm. <laughs> so mm. so and then wow. and then at the end of the 6 months it might have worked. <laughs> If it didn't work, he has to start another piece for another six months. Oh wow, so like, that's a long. If uh... he's lucky, he gets he gets two good pieces a year. If he's not lucky and they break or crack or whatever, he gets no good pieces a year. So like, I mean, there's certain mediums and certain processes that lend better to the speed of Instagram than others for sure. That is true. That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. Thank you. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. We would also appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, families, co-workers, and studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. You can listen, rate, and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. 
We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.